0: So today in the makeshift What the Chai studio, we have Hafsa Khan, AKK, <laughs> AKK um, half and half, who is an artist <laughs> and an immigration advocate from Columbus, Ohio. I told you these early morning sessions get to me. She was born in Karachi, Pakistan okay. and raised in Detroit, Michigan, a true mid She is primarily a painter, but also explores graphic design. Hafsa has been an artist for almost 15 years and an immigration advocate for six. Hafsa has been working to incorporate both of her identities to produce work that reflects her hyphenated self. Her art focuses on showcasing all of her different loves, her heritage, women, fashion, romance, and faith. She is also, she also has 57.7 thousand followers on Instagram, which is awesome. So Hafsa, I'm going <laughs> to ask you, what's the try?
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know... The chai is anything you want it to be. Today it is an espresso with oat milk. So I
0: love that. You're on brand with me, right? You're just like, I'm gonna hold this cup. I'm gonna drink my version of chai for today. Chai can be anything. I like that <laughs> for sure. So with that said, you know, just like um the lovely version of like having your chai be an espresso today, I'm so curious about your background and your history and your story right like you're not first gen you're yes. like an immigrant so tell me like what age did you move mm-hmm. to like the states like you're from karachi i'm from karachi ref so yeah. tell me a little bit more about that journey and how you got to where you are today
1: absolutely i feel like a lot of the times we meet people um in our age range like in our late to or like late 20s early 30s mm-hmm. um and those people Um, now in 2021 are first generation immigrants and so Mm -hmm. their parents have been here they were born here they were raised here and um, they are trying to find their hyphenated selves and I believe that I'm in the same boat too but I um, actually immigrated here um, in 1993 so I was only one but here's my story Um, I was only one when I came to the U.S. Um, and so I feel like you could say that I spent my entire um, childhood as a first-generation immigrant, um, the same you know, story, history. But um, I, from the ages of 1992 to, I'm sorry, from the years of 1992 to 2000, my father would move us back to Pakistan for about three months at a time. And think that we were going to stay there. Really? So my life was a little uprooted um, in my childhood. And so we would finish a year of school, mm-hmm. In the summer we would go, mm-hmm. um, and we wouldn't know if we were coming back until September. <laughs> oh wow! And so it happened a few times. Um, and so I felt like I was living, you know, part time here, part time there, mm-hmm. um, up until I was like eight or nine years old. And those formidable years were definitely shaping the way that I viewed the world. Um, and we're definitely shaping my American immigrant story. Um, and then finally, in the year 2000, he was like, I guess we're just gonna stay in America. <laughs> <laughs> that and so fun, as a kid yeah. just not knowing
0: like, hey, you know, uh, your school peers would be like, hey, so I thought you weren't coming back this year. It's like, you know, I'm just letting you know, it's my summer house in Pakistan. I just have to go (laughs) for vacations, you know how it is. And sometimes it's just so glorious that we might stay there. We might come
1: back. You never know. We keep it interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Too interesting for my taste. And when Mm -hmm. we would come back, we would, um, be in a different school district. Mm -hmm. So like I didn't like I couldn't keep friends from the ages of like five to like nine. Yeah. Um, up until like I was about to start middle school. Um and we just like it would be one school, then hop to another school, then hop to another school when we came Mm -hmm. back. And so we were moving around a lot too. And I don't think I fully established roots until I was in middle school. Wow.
0: So that's also like I don't know did you find that challenging every time you were you just kept moving schools and also I wonder what's the cultural component right because you're going from a western culture back to like your home roots and there's a level of assimilation with back and forth doing the back and forth of that but then there's also the secondary assimilation of like every time you have to like make new friends and try to like plant seeds to settle in roots how is that working for you was that like tough?
1: It was tough, but you know, when you're a kid and things are just happening to you and you don't really fully grasp, like, the consequences of those things until you're, like, way older. Like, I feel like that's what was happening. Like, I was going through this and I just thought that it was normal that people didn't have friends that, like, I, like, I just thought that, like, when you came back to school and, like, Mm -hmm people you had to like make friends from scratch I just thought that that's what you had to do every single year but then wow. I slowly started realizing that people knew each other from the year before oh, <laughs> and I was wow. like that's I guess that's like not normal um so it took me a while to grasp um that I was going through a very like unstable time mm-hmm. um and it I didn't really understand the gravity of moving so much and moving back and forth until I was much older um, because I truly began to understand how um, living over there really impacted and shaped the way that I um, view art today and view Mm. um, immigration in this country this way and how I view policies in this way. And just, it really impacts my lens. Um, But on top of that, I, I feel like being able to stay rooted in one place has become a priority for me later in life. Um, And again, those were like those were consequences that I didn't realize until I was much older. So the culture shock of it wasn't that big of of, like a thing to me as a kid. Because again, I feel like I was a kid, just like, oh, like I'm an American kid who goes to Mm. Pakistan for like three months at a time um my dad just trying to make a decision if he wants to live there live here mm-hmm. um and then we just end up coming back and so it, to me it sounds like a big deal as an adult and understanding yeah. the repercussions of it but when it was happening to me I really don't think I noticed it because like I feel like the main things you, if you asked me were when I was in Pakistan I wasn't allowed to wear shorts and so yeah. like as a kid like you're like why don't you like going there well it's hot and I can't wear shorts like that was my answer yeah. <laughs> you know and then like oh I can't call like KFC delivery for the guy to like come bike over my like lunch to me and then leave every day because I did that when I was like eight years old <laughs>
0: But isn't that isn't that something so amazing like in Pakistan we had delivery for McDonald's KFC you name it we could get it and yeah. right now the U.S. is hopping on that train And it's like we had this a long
1: time ago right it was some guy on a bike who would ring up your doorbell and you would get your food and leave and it would take like 10-15 minutes it would oh, be so God. fast it was the brilliant. funny thing about it was mm-hmm. that you would order it and then you had no idea where he was he could show up and you could not show up <laughs> interesting I never
0: thought of it that way um definitely that yeah that's something I never thought of because we can track we can see where our our peeps are coming in from like right yeah um, are like postmates and it's just like oh mm-hmm. he's like here but with us we we, we trusted our our what, what we do did the writers yeah the delivery writers like we would trust them that they would get our food to us yeah we had faith <laughs> oh no for sure but it's so interesting to hear you talk about that and I think something so pivotal and important that you said is the consequences of those things didn't really settle in when you were a kid right because like yeah. you said you're just living life or a kid my parents tell me to do this I'll do it they say jump I say how high
1: yeah
0: And what I'm really curious to to hear is, you know, when you say consequences and you realizing that in your adult life, what do those consequences look like? Right. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the consequences is that you look for permanency where you're at, where like settling down and making roots is so important to you, but what else have you realized since then as well?
1: I think that without that sort of experience so early on in my life, I wouldn't be able to retain the cultural skills that I find important for me and my heritage, and like being an embodiment of my heritage. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the times, um, and those things are important to me. I think that it's super important that I can speak Urdu fluently. I think it's important for me to understand um, how manners work <laughs> in my household. Um, I think it's important to me to understand the values of the generations older than me, whether or not I agree with them is a different story, but understanding them. Um, and then, you know, on th- those were just like the deeper things, but on a more surface level things, the food, the okay. music, the clothes, the jewelry. Um, and so I feel like without the, like that experience, I wouldn't have been able to keep like one foot in that door and one foot in this door Mm -hmm. as easily as I am or flawlessly and intertwined Mm -hmm. as I can today. Um, Because I do think that I would have gotten a little bit lost and I see that in my brother um, who was born and raised here and has zero interest in culture. Mm -hmm. Um, He speaks Urdu to the best of his ability um but has zero interest in other cultural aspects and completely lives his life in a way um that he is an american and that's something that i envy sometimes because as an american he has this feeling of entitlement that i feel like a lot of immigrants don't he feels entitled to the same rights that americans do and i think a lot of immigrants who are by name now technically americans don't feel entitled to the same rights that Americans have because they feel like they have to pay, and Hassan Minhaj says this, pay the American dream tax. Yes. Um, that they are here and so they're going, so that was like the grand prize that they made it here. Mm-hmm. And so all of the luxuries and privileges that are afforded to actual Americans mm-hmm. don't apply to us mm-hmm. because we're not really them, we're just here, mm-hmm. you know? and. I think that's so crazy to see the stark difference between my family's belief in that and then my brother's belief in that because he who was born and raised here feels entitled to everything Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I wish that I sometimes did too. Mm -hmm. I think that we do sometimes take on the American dream tax. The American dream tax is a little bit of racism, a little bit of like you know, being treated such and such way. A little bit of like a lack of amenities, resources and luxuries that everyone else is presented. We're giving up a little bit of that to just live here. Yeah. Um, and that's not okay. Mm-hmm.
0: That's so interesting that you're in the same household as your brother and you're like going through these different experiences, right? Where, mm-hmm. and I think now I'm also a little curious about his experience where, you know, talking about these little occurrences of microaggression through being just an immigrant, like, is he kind of almost not phased by it? Or is it that he's so assimilated into the Westernized and American culture that he is not a part of it anymore, right? Yeah. Where there aren't microaggressions around him. And a lot of Pakistanis, depending on, you know, who they are or whether they're Urdu speaking or they're like, um, you know, Sindhi, they can also be white passing yeah. to a degree. So mm-hmm.
1: I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Like, is he kind of just like, it just doesn't happen around him? I think that even if it does happen around him, it doesn't apply to him. And therefore he feels exempt from it. And so it's not in the forefront of his mind. And I do feel like a little bit with him, ignorance is bliss Mm -hmm. Um, that like, I don't know what kind of microaggressions can exist in this space, whether it's professional, social, Mm -hmm. whatever, academic, Mm -hmm. So therefore, even if they're happening, I don't even know that they're happening to me. Um, Mm -hmm. And sometimes I envy that. But again, I feel like because of my academia um, and investment in social justice, those things become apparently clear to me in every scenario. And then I just feel like screaming all the time. (laughs) So um, I don't I think a lot of it is what you said, but I think a lot of it is just choosing to remain ignorant in that space which is you know sometimes we say that in a negative way and i'm just saying that Mm -hmm. in a matter of fact way like it just doesn't cross his path Mm -hmm. you know what this reminds me of um a lot of
0: times when i'm doing therapy with my clients i i always get that one one person who's within our generation who's like you know i try to like explain to my grandparents why it's not okay and then my parents tell me that they're older. So you can't say anything to them because they're beyond the age of accountability.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: And then the uh, the conversation progresses. And then my clients always like, well, but then my parents do the same thing and they expect the lack of accountability on them too. Like if they get yeah. a pass to my grandparents, then they also, because they're elders get a pass and then there's no accountability. And then there's more room for ignorance by choice
1: and by authority. And I feel yeah. like this- reminds me of that yeah I think so too I think that um we give them that same pass for accountability the same way that we say things like you know our forefathers were good people in America even Mm -hmm. though they were slave owners because it was okay to own slaves at the time because that was just the time yeah and you can't use that was just the time as an excuse like Mm -hmm. you really can't especially if you're like you know a practicing muslim like you can't do that because during the time of the founders of our religion yeah they didn't get that pass you know mm-hmm. they were operating as model human beings with empathy compassion mm-hmm. and love and they there and you know during that time it was okay to own slaves and people and they didn't, so like I just don't understand how it's applicable in one scenario and then it's disregarded in another. And then we use that same mentality when it comes to the elders in our family mm-hmm. and that's just, it's not okay. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, a tr- is it a, like a trickle down system? Because this is more
0: culturally prevalent. I, I feel like a while ago I would say this is culturally prevalent in like just the Basian community But you're right, where this is also prevalent within the American culture as well, where accountability might not be just in regards to elders, but it is in regards to the history, right? Yeah. It's like, that's a different time. So even though they're saying like, well, we're not a part of this. And it's so interesting because I want to go to to like three different directions in this conversation (laughs) with you. I'm like struggling keeping like a straight, like train of thought. But I'm like, how did you create that harmony? Because a part of the work that I do with my clients is like, striving to understand the immigrant and the first-gen identity with your also like your home country identity or your ethnic background you know whatever's PC sometimes it depends on which environments how you can phrase that to be more politically correct but to create a harmony between the two identities and you found a way to do that and I wonder like are you still struggling with it or are you at that harmony and how did you get to it
1: I think that a lot of it is just authenticity and I feel like I'll talk about this throughout our conversation it's like Mm -hmm. my main theme it's the one thing that I harp on for so long Mm -hmm. is authenticity because I feel like if you are not being true to yourself Mm -hmm. then the work that you're creating what it doesn't matter what kind of work or the persona or personality that you're socially like exuding Mm -hmm. is not going to be easy for you yeah. And it's going to come off looking inauthentic. And um, I think a lot of it is really hard for people because um, although people are say, always say that like, you know, be you, no one else is like you, like uniqueness is so celebrated in this society. People mm-hmm. also just want a sense of belonging and want to be like everyone else. Yeah. And so it's hard when you find yourself in a position where you're kind of trailblazing mm-hmm. and there's no blueprint for it. Because when I started doing this, um, about 10 years, 11 years ago, um, there were maybe three artists that worked or created work in the same genre as I did. Mm -hmm. Um, and then over the past year, it's become 3000 and it, it has just escalated clearly, but you see these people bringing in ideas from the people that started it, right? Like, you know, um, artists like back in the day would um, have to pull from the styles ideas and concepts of artists before them to formulate their own Mm -hmm. um, style and I feel like people today um, are trying to find that as well and so when you're like when you I was like on this path of like trying to figure out what my artistic style was I found myself really trying to Harmonize both parts of my personality, but both parts of my identity—being this American, like, like mom, this American woman um, in her early twenties—and then this like Pakistani Muslim woman in her early twenties, trying to create work that was representative of herself. Um, and I think that the more that I tried to make my art and my work and what I was trying to achieve not look like someone else's the more i found it looking like me and so i get a lot of um um like comments from people or like messages from people um or questions from people asking me you know why don't you do this why don't you create that like here's a suggestion why don't you do this why don't you do that well i'm not doing that because it's not me like if I wanted to do that I would have done it already Mm -hmm. um and I think that that is usually what sets you apart in the space is being as authentic to yourself and so harmonizing those parts of my identity and those hyphens in my Mm -hmm. um in my identity was so effortless because I was just being myself and I think that's what it means to be yourself as an immigrant in the United States that is so
0: amazing and at the same time so complex right like you Mm -hmm. said it so beautifully how authenticity can sometimes drive sometimes drive your true true identity to come forward right Mm -hmm. that's my understanding of it but in a society especially the desi community when you're constantly berated by, by like what people think and how they behave and what is acceptable and palatable to them did you get backlash during that time the initial sort of the inquisition phase of your like artistic career right (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how else to phrase it but like if I don't know your like family dynamic was your family just super supportive and super into you know modeling you to be a creative person and modeling in the sense that just providing support and not putting in doubt or not putting in you know different sort of seeds of the society that didn't
1: just feed the art? I hope that question yeah. made sense. No, it did. Um, it's actually kind of like triggering to talk about it right now because I was just dealing with it last night. Oh, <laughs> um, so I will uh, be, if, if we can, that's awesome.
0: I'll <laughs> hold the space as gently as I possibly can. But that actually might also be a little bit helpful, right? Like how do you yeah. go into that? And how do you go into
1: those spaces? I'm so curious to hear. Um, You know, I have the most supportive nuclear family and my mom and dad are so proud of me. And my brother is as proud as a 24 year old brother can be in his own way. (laughs) And my friends are so supportive, so helpful. My business partner is an amazing human. And my extended family recently actually just became aware of my art because I started sharing it with them. Um, And they were also so, so kind and supportive. And I didn't expect that because I lumped them in to this like preconceived idea I had of like what society will say about my work. Um, And I shouldn't have done that. That was unfair of me because I had no idea how they would respond, especially in my family overseas. And they responded so positively, um, which was such a wonderful thing. And I feel like I've had it um, really, really... I've been very lucky with this. Mm -hmm. Now, with that, um, there are some people (laughs) who have expressed their concern with the way that I create work and would like to see me move in a different direction. Um, And sometimes it's family and sometimes it's people that I don't know. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, those conversations are healthy to have, but they also um have I've also tried very consciously to not let them affect the way and the frequency in which I create because I can totally see how something like that would discourage someone to the point of like quitting and I never want to put myself in that position or give someone else that power because this work like art is my sanctuary it's truly my sanctuary and on top of it being like something that I share with people, it's also just something that I do um, because I love it and couldn't not not do it. And yeah. so, the the feedback that I've gotten in the past has been over the fact that I. Uh, have such a duality in my work. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, if I'm expressing my personality and the different ranges of it, I'm going to focus on faith, but at the same time, I'm gonna focus on romance. Yeah. And so people have expressed concern about that. They don't understand how the same person creating X, Y, and Z that's faith-based can do the same thing by like showing romance like ten day- like 10 minutes later um and so i think understanding that people are multifaceted human beings with mm-hmm. different um like interests <laughs> mm-hmm. um and different parts of them that they want to be able to express is really hard for mm-hmm. people to um understand especially people who don't come from a society that celebrates individualism mm-hmm. um which i feel like is a western society um i feel like you know um overseas we focus a lot of, on community and collective. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's so important in itself, but yeah. the emphasis of individuality isn't really um, celebrated over there. So oh, I think yeah. it's difficult for people to understand. And I think that moving forward, like if you're gonna be somebody like me in this space, you have to be patient with them.
0: Mm-hmm. Patient and I, it's also, I don't wanna use the word tolerant, but another word isn't coming to mind at that Point, right mm-hmm. because it's a po- it's a process of creation it's a process of being tolerant enough to be able to understand it's driving the conversation forward because if there's already judgment with the preconceived notions that they have with your own work how are we going anywhere yeah because I find that so interesting right like how can someone do faith-based work in terms of like art and incorporate that in and how can you do romance as well but it's like just because we have faith doesn't mean we're void of romance or romance yeah like we have an entire like all of our television sitcoms are based on romance in a certain yes. sense and <laughs> you know the tragedy of not being with the one you love or being put in a situation and then romance happening i feel like culturally speaking that's even how um at least within our culture and the whole arranged marriage system that's still you know we do today and it's arranged and it's not forced i just want to preface that (laughs) very important that you know there's always this trust that we've given to um our community and our families that you know you know what's best so like pick someone out for us and they give us this trust that you know love is something that grows yeah build on that so that's almost like a conflict that comes in if that's a conflicting narrative that people are giving to you that how can you have both you know i can pray on my rug at the same times i i can also romanticize about a partner or
1: romanticize anything really. Yeah. Absolutely. And also the fact that our culture focuses so much on marriage. Yeah. Um, and like marriage is like the epitome. It's like the climax of your life, right? Oh, like yes. everybody's entire life is rooted around this one thing that they do. And then anything before or after doesn't matter. And I think that's insane.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely a topic of conversation that's so That's a little triggering to me, right? Because Mm -hmm. when your entire life, you've been directed to think in one direction and anticipate this one event, that's going to be spectacular because our weddings are like off the chain, right? Yes. How can you do better? What else is there beyond that? Or even then that's also used as like a a light of uh, freedom, Like after you get married, you can do this. After you get married, you and your husband can have these vacations. Like after you get married, you can like, you know, wear whatever kind of clothes that you want. But before that, kind of not. And again, I want to preface that this isn't in in every household, but there Mm -hmm. is a common narrative that's happening even then, right? Yeah. But I find that so interesting.
1: Absolutely. I think that what you said about how it's so, romance is such a huge part of our entertainment as well that the fact that you can't you know have that part of your personality exist and then dismiss the other part like they both can exist you can do both
0: yeah why can't people digest it and I was gonna wait a little further to get into this but I remember the last time we talked like you've gotten actually even political backlash from your art right yeah And that was like a pretty big thing that happened. And since we're kind of on that topic, I would like to like touch on it too, right? This is when, when you incorporated sexuality in your art and not like the traditional version of like eroticism, but like there was a sense sensual and I did go back to the website and I definitely found the little places where that art was. And I just want to say it was so beautiful and Mm -hmm. I loved it. And it was, it was awesome. It was sensual. Mm -hmm. Um, but when you were more public with that, uh, tell me like what went down during that time and maybe even like exploring yeah. that, right? Like what drove you to create that? Because I know like romance women and that's such a huge theme within your art, but kind yeah. of driving it from what you started off within your art and then moving into that and then the backlash that you got, which was actually pretty severe.
1: Um, I think that I really wanted to create art that explored... Um, the beauty in sensuality Mm -hmm. for us with people that looked like us because I remember when you walk into a museum and like you see all this like super steamy art from like the renaissance period it's no one that looks like you oh yeah and (laughs) and then if you go into like a museum that focuses on like south asian history and south asian art and you see Mm -hmm. steamy art you also don't see someone that looks like you yeah um you see caricatures of people because they were trying to stray away from like human like humanity and the personification of their work or you see like um like fan like fantastical characters yeah. and so you don't really see something that looks real um in terms of like this this is clearly a person and so I was like trying to explore all these different like art forms and like doing a little bit of research on them and I was like nothing like this exists and so I really wanted to focus on love love is such a big theme in my art And um, whether it be like being in love or like um, looking for love or like yearning for it or like being heartbroken. And so um, I wanted that series to really reflect that, but I wanted the women to look like you and I. Yeah. And so um, when I first started posting them and like sharing them with the world, I got amazing feedback. Mm -hmm. Um, I showed them at Art Basel, people loved it. Uh, um, It was my, it was one of my life achievements to show at Art Basel. So that was such a great thing. And I loved that um, to be able to do that. But then there were also people um, especially people overseas just didn't understand what I was doing. And then my existence became politicized because I was a Muslim Pakistani woman Mm -hmm. creating work across the board, like all of my work Mm -hmm. um, focused on South Asian heritage. And there were people who believe there's a large group of people who believe that like South Asian features and culture belongs to one group of people. And those people um, were upset that I was doing that. And they started harassing me Mm -hmm. um, to the point where it started to feel unsafe. And so um, I don't want to share that part of my art because I also do feel like that it was important at the time Mm -hmm. when I was creating it, but I don't think it necessarily reflects what I want to be doing now and so it exists out there it's somewhere I'm sure people have it on Mm -hmm. Pinterest or something or in their um phone galleries but Mm -hmm. um it's just maybe I'll bring it back one day but for now I really just wanted to um take it and keep it as my own um Mm -hmm. and then maybe share it again when it feels authentic and easy and Mm -hmm. um right to do so but it was um very annoying <laughs> when that happened um and I um think that you know it comes with the territory they always say that like you aren't a great artist until someone threatens your life so oh I feel God. like I'm gonna take it that way <laughs> you made it <laughs> you know death threats. at least one death threat you know you made it That's
0: yeah. for sure
1: But I'm like, I'm up there with Van Gogh and Dolly and Picasso. Awesome. There you go. You've made a (laughs) lifetime achievement, right?
0: It's not the awards. It's that. (laughs) It's how the public responds. (laughs) But I mean, when you're even talking about this, the thoughts of entitlement come up one more time, right? Mm -hmm. Someone so entitled to your expression. I mean, are these same people who had such a strong response that I don't know, did you so I know that you said that that's so personal to you and you'll bring it back when the time is right. And when the, when it still feels authentic, right. Did you feel that you were asked to, or pressured to, because it was a safety thing to take it down before you were ready to take it down?
1: Um, I want to say at the time I was like, Ugh, I don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. Like, I still feel like, you know, I can share this work, yeah. but then I also looking back on it, feel like it wasn't I I was upset because I was like, did I give somebody who I don't even know the power over me and my work and what I wanted to do? Yeah. Um, Because I could have dealt with it, whatever it was, Mm -hmm. I could have dealt with it. Um, And then I really looked at it and thought about it. And I was like, no, I think that this decision was something that I made. Because one, this was a driving force, but it wasn't the only force. Mm -hmm. Um, And I didn't want that one series of work to become my identity as an artist. I just wanted it to be part of my, you know, collection and my archive, but I didn't want it to become my identity. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes we don't have control over how we're perceived and um, that's okay. We have to do that, right? Like we have no control over how we're perceived and we have to be able to move forward. But I didn't want, if I could have control over that, Mm -hmm. I wanted to take control over it and so, I, I think that, you know, I wanted to focus on other parts of my work.
0: That's brilliant. And that's such a mature way to even be able <laughs> to phrase it, right? Because it's about, you talked about it not being the main part of your identity and that was it was a part of a series of your work and that you were able to take power back rather than give power to them. Yeah. And that is so beautiful and that's so empowering and, you know,
1: talking to you, I feel so empowered too. <laughs> I'm and like, yeah. I'm <laughs> I don't feel that way sometimes. So I'm glad that I'm making you feel that way. <laughs> no, for sure. I, I feel
0: like you you embody that you embody something that's artistic and something that's very empowered and someone who's very mature. And that maturity comes from an entire life, right? Lived in a certain mm-hmm. way and being able to take that in. But going back to that conversation, I wanted to know your thoughts on one other thing, right? let's look at the Southeast Asian film industry for like one second, just, yeah. just to bounce off of that. So we have Shah Khan, which is one of our goats, mm-hmm. right? Our gods. Yes. And we have Kajal. And then you have like a classic movie like Gabi Hoshi Gabi Gam, right? And then you have Shah Khan getting all up in Kajal's business with her neck and you don't see these same people reacting like that or you have um there's another actor who does very explicit southeast Mm -hmm. Asian movies um and they're normally like horror movies they're not like the main industry movies that I would say they're like more like kind of on the side like you'll watch them if you watch them and like there's a lot of like very blunt uh sexualness in it Mm -hmm. why isn't that perceived the same way that your art is like what are your thoughts on that like why weren't these same people storming them and being like hey you know you can't do this and you can't showcase our society and our people this way and we're not that sexual in our in the way in our in our demeanor and in the way that we present ourselves so why did they not get that backlash but then you as someone who is creating and exploring you get it like what's up with that
1: Um, I think it's just because of my identity, right? Like I identify as a Muslim woman. And Mm so those same people that are upset with me would never be as strongly upset with them because they come from the same background as those people. Um, And so I think it's literally as simple as that. I think that I got that backlash and that feedback because people were upset that how dare a Pakistani Muslim woman do this mm-hmm. um, when it's not her culture and it's not her people and her people shouldn't they don't look like this somebody even went as far as to tell me that Muslim people don't wear henna they're like why are you drawing henna it's not Muslim and I was like excuse me wow. <laughs> so yeah I think it was really truly just identity politics it wasn't anything more than that
0: That's, that's so interesting. Identity politics. I don't think I've ever heard that term, but it says a lot, right? It says how entitled some people can be regarding certain things when it is part of like, like the Desi population, the Southeast population comprises of so much more than, you know, India and Pakistan, it's Bangladesh, it's Nepal. It's like partially Mm -hmm. Sri Lanka, it's Burma as well. Like if you go to Burma, people speak like Hindi and Urdu and it's like amazing like yeah. they know all the cultural things you can always carry a conversation and I feel like we're just bottlenecked into this like if you're South Asian this is what you mean this is what you look like this is what you're allowed to talk about and if you're from any other place than what's traditionally considered South Asia you don't have a right to that yeah so like I think it says so much I I love the term identity politics that's exactly what that is um and going more a little bit into the political route from the art route you know in the past six years, you've become a very big immigration advocate. Mm -hmm. You act For those of you who don't know, like you are an artist first as a passion, right? And Mm -hmm. then, but your work life is working with immigration. You're not Mm -hmm. an immigration lawyer. You're more along the lines of an advocate. An advocate. Yeah. And with that said, can you talk a little bit more about how you started in that journey and what makes you an advocate for them Um, and why you feel so strongly
1: about that? um I studied international relations and foreign diplomacy Mm -hmm. um in college and so my degree is in that Mm -hmm. and I had a strong 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 interest in politics Mm -hmm. um and I remember like in college I was like one of like five people that would be on a street corner like every like couple of weeks protesting something, um, some injustice. And so um, it was always such a huge thing to me to advocate and represent the underrepresented. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that a lot of that just comes from my identity as being an underrepresented person. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I graduated, my um, like love for politics um, but also like policy, um, translated into a role, um, with the U.S. Senate. So I worked for, um, a senator, a U.S. senator for about six years. Wow. Um, and I was an immigration advocate for him. Now people don't really know what that means. <laughs> I didn't know what that meant when I first started working there, but, um, basically your U.S. senator's office, um, has a, um, s- entire staff that, um, assists, the people that live in that state with federal agencies. And so the federal agency I worked with was the USCIS. And so um, I helped families um, who were facing deportation to um, being reunited with family members that had not been able to come here to um, refugee cases to like student visas. So like, it was just a huge myriad of things that I became very passionate about. Mm -hmm. Um, Not only helping the people, but assisting with policy change as well. Um, And so after that, um, I decided to go the corporate route and Mm -hmm. kind of doing the same thing for um, a company, Mm -hmm. but and learning, you know, how business immigration works too. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just one of those things that I feel like my first exposure into it was being like 12, 13 years old mm-hmm. and like helping my father fill out immigration forms for family members. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, you know, just like helping people like printing out stuff, like learning what's on the USCIS website, mm-hmm. like helping people figure out like how to do this in within my own family at such a young age. Mm-hmm. Um, because sometimes we did have to do that as kids who had parents that were immigrants and not really understanding how to like work the system and so like teaching yourself how to do that and learning about it Mm -hmm. and so that like exposure into that area became um so prevalent in my life at an early age um that I think it just kind of continued And now I find myself in a place where um like I'm a subject matter expert in immigration Mm -hmm. but want to continue being an advocate for immigrants yeah wow
0: And your entire time being like an immigration advocate, like what did you see, right? What did that Mm -hmm. also like tell you a little bit in terms of the American dream and how people were striving to still come here? Or even about the ins and outs of being in the environments where people aren't being treated just because of their like status, they're not being treated well, or they're not, you know, understanding like the limitations of what it means to be a refugee and limitations what it just means to be an immigrant within that realm
1: yeah i think that um obviously like learning how the system works and learning how it works in favor for other people versus Mm -hmm. a lot of other people and by other people i mean black and brown people Mm -hmm. um is was tough in the beginning because i was just like in my early 20s like trying to figure stuff out um and really just had a rude awakening in to how the system worked and how easy it was to get denied um, any sort of like immigration benefit with the smallest like discrepancy and how certain countries immigration, laws for um, immigration from certain countries was way more relaxed than from other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, how your faith really impacted your immigration status and whether mm-hmm. or not you would get um, you know, something approved um, and I think those appearances and like, like those parts of the system are so like, we feel like they're very apparent to the general public, but then seeing how it actually works behind the scenes is just another kind of like grossness. It's like, okay, this is really how it works and it's not ever going to work in the favor of black and brown people. Mm-hmm. Um, and what can we do to change that? What can we do to change the fact that there are still children living um, in, in cages at the US southern border? how there are family members from West African countries that have not seen their children, parents who have not seen their children in years. And how can we change that because of immigration policy? And, you know, there's refugees that have been waiting in line for years and years and years and die waiting to come here, just to escape some sort of persecution from their home country, Mm -hmm. which they are granted because America is supposed to be the land for the free. It's supposed to be, we're found in the principles. Mm -hmm. Our first people that came to this country were political asylees. Like they were leaving, they were refugees. They were being persecuted, the the definition of refugee is someone who leaves their home country because of persecution to refuge somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And the first people that came here did that. Mm -hmm. And so fast forward 300 years later, and we are inflicting the same sort of oppression onto people trying to do the same exact thing mm-hmm. that you know the founders of this country did. Yeah. And so um, I think that it was very exhausting in the beginning, but then you also learned that you can't really be a change agent unless you're in the system
0: mm-hmm.
1: unless you're in like people always say like don't you feel like you sold your soul working in immigration like working for the man blah 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 mm-hmm. I'm like no I really don't think that because any sort of effective change happens within the inside yeah. and so if I wasn't working on these cases with my whole due diligence and prioritization mm-hmm. some other person who might not care that much would have been doing it you know yeah and like not getting the results that I was oh wow I mean, that's that's so tough,
0: right? Watching all these things and knowing the in and outs and knowing that the system doesn't favor like black and brown people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this rhetoric is being uh, brought up that, you know, we just want people here who are legal and we want people here um, to not like take up our resources. Like we have to like focus on fixing or like providing the resources and, um any sort of aid to the American people first before we can even like take in any refugees
1: or give illegal immigrants st- like a legal status. Do you yeah. have like any thoughts on that? Um, I mean, people don't like hop on a boat to come here unless the water's safer than land, you mm-hmm. know? Like yeah. if, if, things have gotten so bad mm-hmm. that this is the last resort. Like mm-hmm. no one's going to live under the radar and not like, you know, fear a parking ticket because of their status mm-hmm. um, or getting found out, like that's not an easy life. People don't do that because mm-hmm. like it's easy for them. People do that because they have to, mm-hmm. like they literally have no other choice what fair means to survive. And so, I don't know, I just think that like this rhetoric is divisive. I think this rhetoric is um, killing people yeah. <laughs> and so, um, I'm sorry, Summer, I don't remember the beginning of your question. <laughs> <laughs> no, you definitely answered that, where I was like,
0: you know, how do you feel about that? Just what are your thoughts? And I think you mm-hmm. answered it, where it definitely is divisive. And, you know, you've worked in it for six years, so I think I'm also curious to hear, have you seen, like, a transition happen in those six years? And if you would yeah. shed some light on it,
1: that would be awesome. Yeah. Um. I worked and, sorry, I was like, started eating a vitamin. Oh, I was like,
0: <laughs> what is she eating? Because that looks good. <laughs> I'm like a snack dude. Like if, if ever we meet in person, this pandemic gets mm-hmm. over. Like I'm known as that one person who like packs snacks for everyone. I have this like <laughs> instinct in myself that I need to feed people and I can't cook (laughs) so it's just like you know chips and cookies and cheese and crackers and fruits and Mm -hmm. like anything and just feed people so I'm like what is she eating (laughs) she's eating a vitamin a gummy vitamin (laughs) it's okay Um, next time I'll I'll send over like a gourmet basket so you can munch on (laughs)
1: love that um, what was your question? So it was just asking,
0: like, in the past, like, six years, have you noticed, like, since you've worked in immigration for six years, you've
1: seen two different times? Yeah, mm-hmm. I have. Um, I saw the stark difference in working in the Obama administration versus working in the Trump administration. Yeah. Um, I just remember like coming into work like the day after the Muslim ban took place while people were were literally in the air so -hmm. like people were like flying here (laughs) and then when they landed at JFK they like were detained (laughs) and there was like protests at um, airports across the country but then there was like you know at big airports like LAX and JFK where there were like attorneys like sleeping Mm. on the ground because they were trying to get people
0: I remember that oh my Mm -hmm. god I remember that that was JFK and LAX yeah here in LA like I remember like I knew like a lawyer friend who was there and like they were just all on their laptops and they were just there it was
1: insane just trying to help as many people as they can figure out what their next move is and um then like all the federal courts were trying to sue the ban. And like, it was just really, really crazy. Mm-hmm. And so um, like that did not happen in the Obama administration. Yeah. And so now we're in a Biden administration and I am I will have worked in immigration for three administrations. That's insane. So trying to see what that's gonna look like. But um, although our immigration system has been inherently the same, which is built on a structure that is um, not in favor, Mm -hmm. of people coming from certain countries versus other ones, Mm -hmm. um, it became extremely amplified during the Trump administration. Um, Deportations grew, um, scrutiny grew within the Department of Homeland Security when it came to screening for people. Mm -hmm. Um, Racist policies were implemented. um, Funding was sent toward a border wall. Um, children were incarcerated and separated from their families. Like, mm-hmm. it was a national travesty, and it will be reported on like 50 years from now as literally the darkest, one of the darkest times in American history. And I think that people didn't realize, but one of the more like polarizing, but like the issues. Mm-hmm um of the 2020 I'm sorry the 2018 election with the mm-hmm. senate um the biggest issue on the table was immigration mm-hmm. and then after that it was health care and now that was going to be the same thing for the 2020 election for the presidential mm-hmm. election but then covid happened yeah and so covid became the big issue mm-hmm. and i think that when it, you know the more urgency in an issue exists, the, the bigger the issue becomes. And immigration was an urgent issue, but it's not right now. And yeah. I think it's important to make it an urgent issue again, because at the end of the day, there's still people who are, who have not been reunited with their families. They're still mm-hmm. missing children and missing parents. Mm-hmm. And that's happening on U.S. soil. That's not happening yeah. anywhere else. It's happening here. Mm-hmm. And so um, I did see a lot of changes. And I think that um, things will just continue to change.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you think for the better, or do you think it's just going to be a back and forth of what we're going to see?
1: I think he. I think this administration has a lot of undoing that they need to do, mm-hmm. and I think that within the cloud of undoing, no progress will be made. Whoa, that's that's pretty straightforward. You're right. That does sound. <laughs> I think that because they have to go back and look at what was done to the system to corrupt it and make it. Mm -hmm. so awful over the past four years, that they'll spend all this time undoing it, then four years from now, we'll be back to where we were in 2008. Mm -hmm. And do you think that's still a better
0: place than where we are right now?
1: Yeah, (laughs) I do. Mm -hmm. I do. But I don't think that there will be progress. I think that'll it just be regressing back to what was normal, and then starting from scratch. So it'll take a long time.
0: Yeah. Wow. I mean, looking at like that, It's going to be a lot of backlash for this administration too like right you're not yeah you're undoing so there is no progress which is yeah and like with that said how do you do you feel like that impacted like your american dream too like these past this past administration like the way you view america the way you view the divisiveness um in my practice like a lot of times we focus on you know like the assimilation the identity and like you know post-traumatic stress disorder from like uh toxic parenting but this is also a different um side of the coin right when it's not about your parents and it's not about your community and it's not just about like assimilation assimilating in but it's almost like your presence is perceived as a threat where it's so divisive right now it still is even after the election i mean what are your thoughts on that like what has it been like or has that shifted your lens of even how you identify yourself as like an american
1: pakistani Muslim woman? I think if anything, this past year, if what has happened in the last six months hasn't radicalized you, then I don't think you're really paying attention. (laughs) Um, Because I feel like, you know, from an insurrection on the Capitol Mm -hmm. to a second impeachment to um, like Wall Street taking advantage of the little guy again, like, you know, I just like, I'm like, I don't know, I don't want to call myself a leftist, but I'm like, if I wasn't Here before I really am now, um, because things are just becoming so and so much more apparent. And like I know that, you know, we're not going to overthrow capitalism anytime soon or ever. But I do think that um, the imbalance in the system is becoming way more clear to people that have been turning a blind eye to it or didn't feel like it affected them because now it's actually affecting them. And now the accessibility of knowledge has made it way more clear to all of us, like what is happening. The mm-hmm. accessibility of information has made it very clear to what is happening in the world, but what is happening to us individually. And I think that that has definitely changed my lens. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like it has affected, it hasn't made me a pessimist in any way, but it has made me more aware of like, this is how the bigger picture is. like. Excuse me. I know the nuance and like why this immigration um, policy exists, but now I understand how it's impacting the bigger picture. And wow. so it's definitely made me um, like reanalyze a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And also I've internalized it too. Like I remember watching everything happen, like on January sixth when I was up, uh, I was working, mm-hmm. had it on my TV, just watching it, and I was like, I don't know how I'm expected to like focus on what I'm doing when like, our country's under domestic attack, (laughs) so, and then it was tough, because, like, I worked in the U.S. Senate, like, they're attacking a place where I had, like, knew the corridors of, and had very close people in my life in the building, so, um, you know, trying to make sure everything was okay, like, everyone I knew was accounted for, Mm -hmm. um, was also very terrifying, Mm -hmm. and then, on top of that, listening to rhetoric about how people saying this is in Iraq, this is in Afghanistan, um, and using that as a threshold or a benchmark of saying, wow, like, let's compare our country to this war torn place, mm-hmm. where it's that's just a racist way of saying, like, we're better than you. Um, yeah. Like, they, people, there was just so much rhetoric, like, this isn't Venezuela, like, you would see to expect these images in Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, And now you're seeing it in like US soil. I'm like, well, those images that you expect to see in Iraq or Afghanistan would have been there because of Western imperialism. Not because, and the consequences of Western imperialism, Mm -hmm. not because this is just something that happens in their country. There's a reason why this would have happened. Mm -hmm. And now you using it as an example is just pure racism Mm -hmm. and it was just like so many levels to all these things when they were happening that it just like definitely if it didn't change your perspective then I don't think you were paying attention Mm
0: -hmm. no absolutely and I think I'm curious about another part of this is that you know you have family or like extended family back in Pakistan as well and like this is something that I found myself in an interesting position especially when the Trump administration came on that there was almost this like oh you're in America like now this was the place to be made fun of and this is the yeah looked at somewhere backwards it's like yeah you know you guys were kind of like the pedestal we looked towards in terms of like education in terms of like you know not being racist or not even not being racist but it was just a very developed country did you find it interesting in terms of the conversations you were having back home it's interesting I call yeah. Pakistan back home but <laughs> that might not be the case for you I still call it
1: <laughs> um I think that it wasn't with them specifically but I do think that those were conversations that I was having with friends outside of the U.S. Mm-hmm. um I think like I remember I made some criticism towards the Indian government and Modi and yeah. somebody like responded to me and they're like well you live in America so like <laughs> you know like look in a mirror I was like I was like you know you're not wrong
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh my god I mean yeah yeah it's it's interesting right and like a lot of people right now the way they paint us in our position in the United States is just Mm
1: -hmm.
0: it feels less stable after this inauguration that's personally how I feel that's a lot of like my clientele how they felt um especially that week when we definitely sat down for session and we were like okay what are we gonna talk about it's like it feels different the air is different something's yeah. something feels like it's not dr- a dr- something's not dramatic anymore and I remember I was watching the inauguration and I was so curious I was like what's Trump doing how's Trump feeling like
1: yeah I'm still
0: used to seeing him and everything about him and everything about his opinions that it's been a reality show for the past four years and I was like well, what is he doing like yeah Biden's like you know cool and everything and he's like so chill but I'm so used to to the dramaticism of everything I'm so yeah. used to the divisive the divisiveness that I just don't know now it's just like huh
1: things feel calmer in a certain way you're so right it's like there was the season finale of like a reality tv show that we were all living through oh my god this was like the bachelor
0: Trump did not get yeah. final rose we're <laughs> all very Biden now um I do want to um spend just a little bit of time for the time that we have remaining talking about your sense of fashion. We talked about your art. We talked about your advocacy and how you're just an awesome uh, immigrant advocate for sure. Um, but I also want to talk about how you highlight your fashion. Like I follow you on Instagram. I, I see all these awesome shots and I see your, um, your outfits, how you style yourself. And it's just brilliant. And if you can take like a minute to just talk about your personal aesthetic, I would love it.
1: Oh, my God. I love clothes. I'm obsessed <laughs> with clothes. Um, Love clothes, shoes, and bags. Bags became a recent um, obsession. I didn't really like purses. I'd never carried a purse up until last year. I Appreciate. never carried a purse. Um, I hated the summertime because I didn't have pockets. And so, like, I would carry a small bag in the summer sometimes. But I loved winter because I had pockets and I didn't need to carry a purse. Oh. Um, so, my fashion was functional. <laughs> but... <laughs> um I'm super into oversized stuff and mm-hmm. so like I'm really into like oversized hoodies and oversized coats um I just love that like looking like a trash bag is in right now it's so fun for me mm-hmm. um, but I re- definitely like really really love like um my um, South Asian heritage. I love Pakistani designers. I love su- supporting Pakistani designers. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Pakistani clothes, and I follow Pakistani fashion very closely. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with my like more like American Western aesthetic, I feel mm-hmm. like it's a very big combination of like streetwear, but also femininity because mm-hmm. I love being girly, and that's such a big mm-hmm. part of my personality. Yeah. Um, so my biggest thing is right now is shoes and oversized coats totally okay. obsessed with them
0: so i'm going to give you this opportunity to so i have two questions um yeah. so i want you to name like if you can i don't know if like designers more your aesthetic but if you were to have any like three designer bags which designer bags would they be and then i want to also give you this opportunity to shout out any like south asian designers or yeah. people who, like making clothes just to like you know give them a little shout out and Find a place where people can kind of like match your aesthetic. They really like it because you do look very comfy, but you also look like comfy, (laughs) but with like jewels. Like the jewelry is what
1: I live for. Absolutely. Yes. Jewelry is so important to me, um, especially my necklaces. Um, I have, I wear four. I I just added a fourth piece. This is the first one. It's my name in um, uh, Arabic and it's my handwriting. So I had a jeweler make it. Yeah. That's insane. I did some calligraphy. This is a drawing of a rose that I had a jeweler make. So this is also my sketch. Oh, wow. And then my evil eye because I'm obsessed with evil eye design mm-hmm. and what it means and its history. And then I just finally added a little la chain. That's so OG. <laughs> Allah chain. Like yeah. just, at one point I had one too, uh,
0: like your mom always gives it to you like, here, we're going to like an occasion where the, where the, Allah chain. Yeah. um, I wish I had, I had it still, but I, unfortunately I don't, but, um, so love the dainty jewelry. So yeah, yeah. Tell me like three of your top designer bags that if you, if you are mm-hmm. someone who's, you know, coming into the fashion realm and you're kind of confused as to what designer bag to get, what would be your three recommendations
1: for your, so, per- um, my three recommendations right now, um, mm-hmm or the three bags that I've recently purchased mm-hmm. um, is the Louis Vuitton um, Pouchette. Mm-hmm. So it's like the three bags or sorry, it's two little bags and it has like a big chunky strap with like a tiny like case that mm-hmm. hangs off of the strap. It is the most functional bag I've ever purchased um, it, it was the most expensive bag I ever purchased, and I was like never again will anybody <sighs> should ever be spending this much money on a purse. Um, I felt gross, but I wanted it so badly. <laughs> it has three, so it's like so functional because it's like mm-hmm. a big chunky strap. You can wear it over your shoulder. Mm-hmm. I actually left it at my friend's house, so I don't have it on me. Oh, no. um, this is my other favorite bag. Yes. My Jacques oh. It is so stupidly shaped um but it is the cutest freaking bag I've ever seen it's like this blue suede and it has a strap and I've had no occasion to wear it because we are in a pandemic (laughs) (laughs) it sucks is it like Um, a crossbody because it looks more crossbody yeah it is a crossbody but you can also like do like Like just the handle But yeah. my mom was like, where's the other handle? She's like, they didn't they ran out of money and couldn't make the other one. That's that just a just similar thing to say. Like if you get literally it, it's like shorter, it's like, oh, did they not
0: have enough material to like cover this up? I love it. <laughs> so those are two. Give me one more.
1: Your favorite. I'm gonna show you my Telfar. Ooh. My little Telfar. I haven't used it yet either. Telfar is a black queer designer. Um, and so I love supporting artists of color. Um, and this is a um, very, they call it the Bushwick Birkin. Um, and it, you, it became popularized in Brooklyn. Um, and this designer who's black and queer um, focused on sustainability, but also like fashion in a fun way because this bag is, was the most sought for out bag this year. Oh, wow. Um and it sold out everywhere, but it was cheap. Like he, they really focused on um making it affordable because mm-hmm. their like price range is between a hundred and two hundred dollars. Um, and it became the most wanted bag of 2020. That's um, and so I love that they made um such an impact in the fashion community. That's amazing. And the fact that you got
0: your hands on one. I know. (laughs) Uh, And I want to comment on one thing you said earlier about uh, your Louis Vuitton bag. Like, girl, I say this to my clients treat yourself, self care. That goes hand in hand. And you definitely do deserve it. Um, (laughs) But I also want to hear either you can shout out like two or three of your favorite South Asian creators or designers or artists. I want you, I'm like, I want to give you that opportunity to shout them out too, if you would like that.
1: I'm going to shout out my business partner, <laughs> um, he has his own brand, it's called Roots Gear. Um, his name is Thenmet. Um, he's based out of Maryland and um, his business has been around for about 10 years and they mm-hmm. focus on the Sikh Punjabi diaspora oh, wow. um, and creating like wearable art for them mm-hmm. um, and I love his business, his brand, his story. Um, And then the other brand I want to shout out is Rasta, which are my friends from Pakistan who focus on artisanship in their clothing. Um, And so I believe they're from Lahore and they have artisans that are local to them and they pay them a living and fair wage to create work that is um, one of a kind and handmade. Um, And so they have created so many different pieces that are like South Asian streetwear, but they were created by actual artisans. Mm-hmm. They're at a higher price point because of that, because they're paying the artisans a lovable wage and mm-hmm. adequately for their work. Um, and each piece is super unique. And so I think they're really cool. That's awesome. That
0: sounds brilliant. I love, I love yeah. the shout outs and uh, I'm also going to be linking all these things so other people are able to find them for sure. Yeah. Um, with that said, you know, you're such a unique person within the Southeast Asian community. I mean, I do focus this podcast to bring in creators and people who are, you know, able to uplift the South Asian community, especially the women. And I feel like you do embody that so much in your own way, whether it's incorporating your art into your aesthetic, um, that has like the tinge of Southeast Asian in it. And also like, you know, being an immigration advocate, being someone who's powerful, who's also working, um, being able to you know, cultivate thought and move the dialogue forward. I think it's so important. So if there's anything you have to say, especially to the Southeast Asian women who are trying to still understand themselves, whether it comes to identity, whether it's about being empowered um,
1: or anything, like what would you say to them? Um, I'm going to wrap it all up and bring it back to authenticity. I'm going to... uh, always, always, always preach authenticity because if you are being yourself and creating work and doing meaningful things that are important to you because everybody has different values and if we all focused our values, on the one thing, then all the other things would not get attention. (laughs) And um, that's why people always say that like, you can't be a single issue voter or a single party voter or a single issue voter, you can't care about one thing. Like, you know, everybody has to always be caring about everything and social media makes you feel like you need to be caring about everything at all times. Mm -hmm. And that's very true, but as a human being, you do not have the capacity to do so. (laughs) And so being focused on what is core, and important to your values is so important because it will um, shine through in the work that you create. Mm -hmm. And whether that be acting, singing, dancing, art, um, you know, academics, Mm -hmm. whatever. um, If you are authentic and really doing what feels right Mm -hmm. and what feels important to you then it will shine through and you will be good at it because if you're trying to do things that don't matter to you you're not going to be good at them and so I think that um, when you really really focus in on what makes you you you're going to be able to create meaningfully that's beautiful. Thank you so
0: much for that. And Hafsa, thank you so much for your time. Where can we find you? What's your website and what is your Instagram handle so people can interact and interact with you, see your artwork and, you know, support your business?
1: Yeah. Um, you can find me at halfandhalf.com without the ls, so half and half no ls. h a f a n d h a f on Instagram um, and then you can also um, email me at hello at half and if you want to talk more, have more inquiries or questions. Um, but you can find me all there. Awesome. Thank you so much for giving me the time today. We were so happy
0: on having you on what's the chai. This was a privilege. What's the chai? <laughs> Hopefully we'll have more encounters in the future. Um, yes. and we'll bring you on back for some more interesting conversations. Thanks. Awesome, thank you. So that was Hafsa Khan from Half and Half on the What's the Try podcast. A little fun fact, um, the podcast cover art was actually designed by Hafsa Khan, So we are so appreciative to her to come on, give us our time and also design that kick-ass logo. We really appreciate it and hope to have her back again soon. With that said, all the links and creators that she has mentioned in the episode are going to be linked down in the description of this episode. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at what's the chai official until next week. I shall see you then. Take care.